Welcome to Buy the Bywater, a podcast on the Megaphonic Network. I'm Ned Raggett. I'm Oriana Schwint. I'm Jared Pekachek. And we're here to talk about all things J.R.R. Tolkien. His work, his inspirations and impact, creative interpretations in other media, languages, lore, ripoffs, parodies, anything we think is interesting. Thanks for joining us. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of By the Bywater here for this month uh, in August, as we're all once again dying of the heat, more or less. Uh, Oriana earlier proclaimed the weather as trash, but hopefully, uh, you know, still surviving and not as crazy as last time. Uh, how's everyone doing? Pretty good. The weather's here. What I hear is fine, so. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> and Oriana, you? <laughs> I, I spent all of yesterday. I was going to go to the beach yesterday, and instead I was struck by, I, I don't know if we want to call it inspiration or what. I spent all of yesterday writing, um, like, starting to adapt the story of Baron and Luthien. Mm, for television cool. for no re- there's no reason to do this there's absolutely no reason to do this but i just couldn't not that's it's a hot hot saturday evening <laughs> spent doing that you you were called to the shore by ineluctable seagulls or whatever but then you had to write out the story you see it all ties in yeah <laughs> exactly so fun 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 maybe we can do that as like a, a bonus of some kind hey there you go yeah how do we yeah, well i was at the you know even where i was you know the ocean was right there but uh but in carmel that's where i've been for the past week just visiting family and seeing some friends and things like that but here i am back so we are all ready to chat uh, as a quick not really bonus but what we were talking about just a little bit before um stephen colbert seems to just keep coming up uh with us here because he is you know the tolkien fan supreme in the public eye at least um be able to catch references to Tolkien in both the serious uh, news bit that he had, which was a discussion with Anderson Cooper the other night, and then the more goofy one uh, where he had Lee Pace, who of course played Thranduil in the, in the Hobbit movies, and uh, and uh, Lee uh, tried to nerd out on uh, some Tolkien language from the get-go, and then uh, Colbert ran with it, so... You know, out there fighting the good fight. But um, there's much more to get through this episode. In fact, there is a lot of uh, information we have to get through about uh, Amazon series. So let's cut to the chase and we will now move on with the news. Yeah, so our guest last episode was right. Um, just a few days after Comic-Con wrapped, Amazon took advantage of this uh, quiet time to post a video on their Twitter for their Tolkien adaptation, and they announced the full creative team behind the series. So besides the showrunners, there's a crew of writers and producers who have worked on a variety of shows, including both so-called prestige peak TV and more genre-oriented stuff. Um, so costume designer uh, Kate Holly has worked on things like uh, Crimson Peak and Edge of Tomorrow. Um, Crimson Peak is amazing, so I'm optimistic about this now. Um, And their production designer, Rick Heinrichs, is a veteran of Star Wars The Last Jedi, which also looked amazing, so... Yeah, pretty pretty promising, and you know we're sort of skipping over the uh, writers' room team of credits there. But uh, Oriana, you were mentioning some names earlier, and it certainly seems like uh, that uh, there's a lot of a lot of uh, both talent and reasonable experience brought to bear. What's your take on the writers' room as it was, as it was announced? Yeah, I think it looks great. Uh, I'm a big fan, in particular, of Jen Hutchinson. Uh, who Hutchinson? Sorry, there's no N 
in there. There's only one N in there. Um, but she is great. She has written for Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. And she does have like genre cred, I guess you could call it. Not that she needs it, but in, she was, uh, on, uh, The Strain, which there, we, we also have another Guillermo del Toro, uh, little connection there. Um, so it's, and there's people who were on like fringe, which was great. Everyone should watch fringe. Um, I don't know where it's, I don't know if it's still on Netflix streaming, but, uh, like it's, it's, it's a genuinely, um, really great looking staff of, of people. And it gives me great, great hope. And there's like, you know, a couple other things that are very promising is, is, you know, illustrator and concept designer, uh, for the show is John Howe, who mm-hmm. yeah. with Alan Lee, you know, they were, they were behind the look of, of the, of the Peter Jackson versions of, of Tolkien's work. So they're, there's going to be some visual continuity, I think, and together with Kate Hawley, I think, like this is all just very promising. I think Hal as uh, is is kind of a dare I say an unexpected choice. I mean, there was absolutely no reason that uh, either he or or Alan Lee, for that matter, would necessarily be called in. I mean, especially if the idea was to sort of go over fresh. I'd I'd like to hear from Hal about like was he approached? Did he approach them? Uh, you know what the exact uh, work of how that worked out. I'm not surprised necessarily that Lee hasn't gotten involved. He he always seemed a little more all in in some respects with the Jackson team, and he's also uh, you know not to put too fine a point in it, and he's older than uh, Hal by a few years, I believe, and he may just be like you know I've I've had my fun <laughs> and things like that, so I've I've done well, and it would be interesting to find out if Hal is going to uh, do what he did you know with Jackson Productions and actually fly out there and be there on site, or if he's going to be more of a remote designer or sort of going things in working it that way, which she may want to do as well. I'm sure we'll find out. But yeah, Kate Hawley, kind of to step back to uh, to her a bit before we address other things. I, I know, Jared, you were really thrilled about uh, about uh, the fact that you've worked on Christmas Peak and Edge of Tomorrow. Could you, say, could you say a little more about your impression of her, like, you know, how she is as a co- as a costumer, what, what sort of grabs you about uh, her work based on that? Um, well, I actually haven't seen that many movies that she's worked on. So I've seen, obviously, Crimson Peak and Edge of Tomorrow. I'd have to bring up her actual IMDb page to see what else she's done. But she's a really good, thoughtful, thorough designer, like mm-hmm. Crimson Peak, mm-hmm. and, which is my one of my favorite movies of recent years, is so intricately put together visually. And she's a huge part of that because the costumes in that movie are incredible and just say so much on their own that I think she's a really good fit for this. And I was thinking that given Howe's input uh, for the Jackson films on things like how armor works and things mm-hmm. like that, I'm thinking mm-hmm. the combination of her and Hallie, um, her and Hallie, uh, him and Hallie, <laughs> uh, would, uh, will make, uh, will, uh, will make a certain, really stand out there too. Um, any further thoughts on Howe uh, from either of you two's involvement? I just can't wait to see, like, I'm, I'm just, you know, waiting with bated breath to see what, you know, what will be different, what won't be different, you know, how will they incorporate wood into, uh, (laughs) (laughs) all of the set designs. Yeah. Okay. So about that, I really don't expect them to just because Mm. I don't think they're going to be that adventurous Mm. and using wood that way visually would be a really adventurous choice, especially for a gigantic production with a lot to lose. So I wish they would, but I doubt they will. 
And for those who might be wondering what that's about, that's why you got to be listening to all our episodes. Every single one. Yeah. Per, per preceding episode, the one on Aldarian Orendus, this subject came up, so there is a relevance. So, And besides uh, Hal's involvement, of course, there's someone else, if you want to talk more about that, Ariana, who's involved with all this. Yeah, to keep everyone in line um, will be Tom Shippey, who... So the, the, the production put out a, a video, as Ned said, sort of going through who is going to be part of the team to put this together and Tom Shippey is credited as you know Tolkien scholar uh, which is a bit of an understatement uh, <laughs> he's you know he has a, he had an academic career studying old English that was like very much in the, you know following sort of Tolkien's line of work and he has been a regular critic and defender of Tolkien for like you know half a century at this point um, you know think of key books like The Road to Middle Earth and J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the century. Um, but what I love about this is like, as soon as the video came out, as soon as this is all announced, he like, Im- Shippy immediately gives an interview to a German fan site that I feel like I'm going to mess up this pronunciation, but it's Tolkien um, Gesellschaft. Gesellschaft, I think. So you were close. Thank you. My German is non-existent. So, you know, so he sort of laid out and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that we didn't know this already. Like we already kind of knew that it, we already knew that the TV series was going to be, you know, was going to take place in the second age. I think maybe it might've been a bit of a surprise that this was because the Tolkien estate has said, no, like all you can use, you can only do the second age. You can't have anything that, that is part of the narrative of the Lord of the Rings in particular. Um, so that's kind of funny to me because Amazon spent $250 million, <laughs> a quarter of a billion dollars on the rights. And they're only allowed to use, but a bit Shippy says that, that apparently the Tolkien estate, like, you know, they have veto power on everything. However, they are supposedly giving the writers a lot of leeway in terms of creating new characters and, you know, sort of uh, coming up with their own, um, like Tyra. Oh my God. Is yeah. That- <laughs> Let's talk about Tyra. Let's talk about Tyra indeed. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll talk a little more about some Shippie's comments there, but it does lead into the fact that while there has been no actual specific, yes, this is who is cast information. Uh, there is a tidbit that has broken that one person is under discussion. This was courtesy of a variety exclusive. And this was a couple of days before the Amazon video was posted and there's been nothing else since, but Australian actress, Markella Cavanaugh, I believe that's how she pronounced her name. Just another, Kavanaugh, um, has, who has appeared in a variety of uh, productions such as the recent reinterpretation uh, for Netflix, I believe, of uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, is in talks to join the production as a character who doesn't share a name with anyone in Tolkien's writings called Tyra. So cue the Middle Earth's next top model jokes. Um, but per a report on the OneRing.net, Tyra was one of four names used for characters in audition scripts. Those things where they're just testing out people, see if they'd be a good fit, you know, just, you know, play this role, do that sort of thing. And there's no specific note that this is a final name yet, or even if this particular character in the audition script is even going to be used. That's still unknown at this point, although I'm sure the production has it very much in mind. 
mind. And as uh, Oriana mentioned, uh, Shippy was uh, clear, and this is the exact quote uh, from him, that the production has a relatively free hand when it comes to adding something, since very few details are known about this time span. But again, and this is the, the exact direct quote from Shippy on this, is that ultimately the estate is, quote, quite capable of saying no. They retain a veto over everything that concerns Tolkien. So mixing this casting news with, with Shippy's sort of like role of, yeah, I don't want to say gentle enforcer, but clearly he's, you know, keeping this in mind. And I really do think he's kind of the back channel guy who, you know, will say something like, you know, probably don't go this route. But I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think both about that and, and the Tyra news? I can't say I know Kavanaugh's work at all beyond just a you know quick mention of some of her stuff. So I have no impression of her. And I know it's been a couple of weeks. I should at least look up a clip. But uh, any thoughts on any of that? As a Seattle person, I really, really want to watch the Tolkien estate fight them to the death. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I know it won't happen, and it's not really related to anything Tolkien-specific. I just want somebody to take Amazon on in whatever capacity and win. <laughs> so that's where I am emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> just show them that they're not the they are not the only power in this world. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't know that that you know that would actually happen. I just, I have visions of like Amazon being forced to back down from stuff. I don't know. I don't know. I just want something <laughs> to mm. happen. But you don't want Tyra. I don't, I don't want Tyra. I don't want yeah, Tyra. I, mm, yeah. I just don't know. I mean, I could get away with that maybe as a Hobbit name, maybe, no, but, but like, even that's a just, stretch. Yeah. So. Linguistically, it just doesn't mesh with it. But like, as you know, from the get-go, I was like, this is clearly a pseudonym. Like, it, and, and it might not even be, like, the sides that they wrote for, I'm guessing they wrote sides specifically for the auditions, and that are probably not going to be part of any actual script. Um, that's just, This project is just too big. There's too, you know, like, they do this stuff for Doctor Who, you know, and, and whatnot. So, the, like, genre shows in particular... I'm not too worried that, that they will actually name her Tyra. I think, you know, it, it may be, maybe she is, you know, Tara and Kalime, like, or something. And that's somehow, that's, yeah, I, I don't have any, you know, good, good luck to her. I've never seen her. I hope she's great rooting for her success. Yeah, that's about all we can say, really, at this point. There was one other thing I just remembered, too, from the Shippy interview that kind of ties in uh, with a mention earlier uh, about how they can't really use, you know, get too much into Lord of the Rings specifically. There's a flip side to that. Shippy specifically said that the estate has said to the uh, to Amazon that the first age is completely out. In other words, no Silmarillion, uh, at least not at hmm. this stage. Give it to so, me. Give it to me. Give me... The ability to adapt the Silmarillion, please. It would wouldn't it be fantastic if they're like, yeah, we gave Amazon to you know we got two hundred fifty million from Amazon. We're good. Uh, we just you'll charge you a dollar. Then you'd be like, yes, I'm set. So, so on, on come the day that Orion gets that, I yeah, that's something. That's one of those things I'd love to know more about. And as far as I know, there is no information about it, at least publicly about whether these rights were as all encompassing as maybe we thought they were. It could be maybe more of a parceling out like you're getting this and that's all you're getting you know and yeah. all that so mm -hmm. and uh, I, I think it'll be interesting the other thing that just left to mind literally just now and i think we mentioned this before is that this is not the only um 
big, huge project that Amazon is doing as a fantasy thing involving the estate of a dead author. And that, of course, is simultaneously. And in fact, there's been more news on this in terms of casting. They've announced uh, they've announced cast members for uh, uh, Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time series. Um, and uh, getting into that would go well beyond what we have here. But uh, the thing to note is that um, they, too, have a very protective estate. And that estate has also been burned. Uh, there was a famously a weird phantom half hour thing you know what i'm talking about that happened a few years ago it was like screened it was like filmed just to hold on to the rights almost like that weird tolkien adaptation animation thing from the late 60s that happened that's a whole story in and of itself just to hold on to some rights temporarily and the estate when they went and was broadcast once on tv and people were like hey it wasn't even announced what's going on and it was like the adaptation of literally the first page or two of the very first wheel of time book and the the jordan's estate had a complete cow and all the rest of it so so all all i'm saying is you know who that's its own story i'm sure there's plenty of discussion on other podcasts or things focusing on that it's just very interesting to me that amazon is taking on two now very very incredibly careful estates you know and doing adaptations like you better keep in line because i'd love to see these two team up and go like you know let's destroy amazon they've screwed it up completely it is really funny like they you know amazon wants its tentacles in everything and it looks, you know, it's so it's it's not a surprise, I guess, that they're going after literally the most high profile fi- adult fantasy uh, properties that that they could, you know, I, the the historic materials, I guess, technically is YA, um, but that also I'm sure was tied up well before. Amazon was like, oh, we need to get in on this, and I think I think honestly, most of the money. Amazon shelled out for the Lord of the Rings was literally for the title. They were like, we don't care what material we have access to. Just give us the title. I mean, that's, this is pure speculation on my part. I don't, but it would, I mean, that's, that's the value really, or to certain business people, I think it's, you know, brand recognition is the ultimate goal for, for them. That makes total sense. Yeah, completely. Uh, we could go on, but uh, I'm sure there'll be more speculation. And po- I'm guessing from this point on in, we're going to get like, you know, monthly news on this thing. You know, we're, we're going to get more, you know, this, you know, the floodgates are opening and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about uh, both casting news and I'm sure, you know, initial photographs or rumors of things, you know, plenty of times now, but things that are gearing up into gear. But let's wrap up here for now, because it's not just about, you know, whatever Amazon is and isn't going to do. It's about what we're talking about. And so let's move into. Uh, Oriana takes the lead this time, moving into the main topic. Oh, yes, it's time. It's time to talk about Galadriel. Um, so, you know, you're probably already picturing her as soon as I said her name, right? You know, she looks like Kate Blanchett because that she was just such an indelible performance in the movies. Um, she is a pivotal figure throughout the entire legendarium. Uh, she's like the only substantial good guy in the Lord of the Rings. Who's, who's been around since the first age, but who is she? Who's, who is this lady? Um, so like a quick brief history. Galadriel was born in Valinor, the undying lands, Amon, uh, you know, special place where the, the demi semi gods are during the years of the trees, which is the good times. Just, 
you know, she is the only daughter of the House of Finnerfin, and she had three brothers, including Finrod Felagund, who is my personal favorite elf. Um, and her half uncle, I believe is the, is the relationship there. Uh, Feanor was inspired by her hair to make the Silmarils, the most beautifulest specialist jewels in all the world. And that inspired like insane amounts of bloodshed and horror. Um, but it was, he noticed that the, the light of these two wonderful trees was, was caught in her hair and very beautiful. Galadriel wasn't super a fan of Feanor, but uh, she did really, really want to leave Valinor for Middle-earth. And she was part of the massive exodus of High Elves uh, back to Middle-earth, even when Feanor and some of the others killed some of her own kin, which is interesting. So she gets to Middle-earth and hangs out with Melian, who, if you don't know who that is, why you listen to our (laughs) episode episode three, episode three three of the podcast. Uh, It's a great episode. She is so interesting. Um, But then, you know, after, after uh, Galadriel gets to Menegroth, which is where Melian and her husband Thingol live, we, we don't hear a whole lot about her for a long time. She kind of drops out of the narrative. Um, We have no, you know, when we meet her in the Lord of the Rings, she is queen of Lothlorien, but we have no idea when she ended up going there with her husband, Celeborn, or even when she met Celeborn, because in the Silmarillion, it says she met him in Menegroth and that he was a kinsman of, of Thingol and a Sindarin elf. But there is a later version of the story in the Unfinished Tales where he's one of the Teleri and they met in the West before leaving for Middle-earth. You know, we'll, we'll put a pin in that for right now. Because when we when we meet her in The Lord of the Rings, she is married to Celeborn, uh, who we know almost nothing about, and she is already in possession of the elven ring Nenya, and she is the mother of Celebrian, who is Elrond's mythe and Arwen's mother, and she refuses to take the one ring when Frodo offers it to her, and then she leaves Middle-earth with Gandalf and Elrond and Frodo, and uh, Celeborn doesn't go with her. Her husband just doesn't go with her, and it's strongly implied that they'll never see each other again. And uh, you may be wondering why. It's a great question, and one that you'll never, ever get an answer to. Sorry. Um, it's not one of the great romances right? in Middle Earth. Yes, it's this other... Well, okay, so we'll, we'll get back to that. We'll put a second pin in that. You know, she feels... She does... Correct me if I'm wrong, but she feels kind of similar to Melian in in some ways. When we meet her in Lothlorien, she is very much this sort of mysterious fairy queen. You know, Lothlorien itself feels sort of like a traditional fairy land. This there is this suspension of time, or or seeming suspension of time. There is this supernatural beauty. You know, you don't know a whole lot about Galadriel. She she you know talks a little bit about her history, and it's actually actually con like contradicted by what's in the appendices like a few hundred pages later which is what is so interesting to me about her is her murky history gives us an insight into the unceasing creative process at work behind the scenes here like literally in the last month of his life Tolkien was working on this different history of Galadriel it's the version in which Celeborn is one of the Teleri and they meet not in Middle-earth in some versions of the story, she is mother to a son called Amroth, who is king of Lorien. But in other versions, she isn't. You know, in the final version that we read in The Lord of the Rings, she, she is not the mother of Amroth. And, you know, her story 
probably more than any other is the one that was most consistently being altered, being played with. What do you, let's actually start with the Galadriel and Celeborn. What, what do you guys think is up with that? Because to me, it seems like they are this, this married couple, they're like the married couple, you know, who isn't like, you're not sure why they bothered to get married in the first place. Like mm-hmm. in the Lord of the Rings, she is constantly correcting him and talking down to him. And it feels like this is a consequence of them not having a settled story. But mm-hmm. what do you guys, what do you make of them? I mean, to be honest, part of it is, is the the not having a settled story thing. But I also wonder if Tolkien, who as much as I love him, was not like the most woke person out there (laughs) i i genuinely think he could not quite conceive of a woman exercising power on her own Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah all the most powerful women in the legendarium are married yeah to lesser men yes but (laughs) as we keep coming back to but i mean galadriel of all of them feels very much like she could have done without a husband i mean melian and thingo love each other that's the origin of their story that's why doriath exists and all that but Galadriel just kind of has this accessory. Just like, <laughs> oh my god! And that's it. Celeborn is accessory. I, he's a trophy yes, husband. He's like a purse. <laughs> <laughs> he's a real elf on the shelf. You know, oh take him god. down when he's beat. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean that's. I think that's probably the real reason. She was just like, well, she's got to have a husband. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fact, you know, the fact too, that uh, he's called uh, he's Celeborn the Wise. Really? No, right? It's such, like was was that a troll? Was that a joke? That's just because he was the wisest person before she came along, um, and like, and they keep it as a courtesy title. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I can see it now. Galadriel the Wise, er. Yes. Well, and that's. I mean, it's really interesting because there is uh, in in this much later version of the story of Galadriel and Celeborn, um, uh, Galadriel is is actually Galadriel and Celeborn were the ones who started the sort of mini kingdom ish of mm. um oh god how do we say it is it Eregion 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 okay it, yeah. thank you oh my it's god. always a hard g yes mm. okay you know they were the one it was like they arrived there with Celebrimbor who um is a son of a son of Feanor who like you know abjured his his family's awfulness, but uh, and he's Celebrimbor is the one who made the Elven rings, and uh, like you know couldn't see that that Sauron was Sauron. Um, but there is in this in this later version there there is a sort of love triangle between Celebrimbor, Galadriel, and Celeborn. Which, and I'm like, oh, I really would have loved to have seen this. It, not least of which because Celeborn just seems so boring. Like like I said, he like or like Jared, you said uh, he's window dressing. <laughs> you have to wonder if he's mentally checked out or something like that. I mean, if you wanted to be generous to the character, um, you know, their daughter left a long time ago. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, maybe he's felt that he's lost something uh, anyway. Uh, d- to explain, by the way, for folks, uh, uh, Calabrian, uh, the, uh, their uh, their daughter, who is also Elrond's wife, Elrond's mother, as, uh, as Ariana mentioned, 
there's a subplot, uh, which is never fully developed, but is discussed where she has been, uh, she is captured by orcs and held in torment for a couple of years. No further details than that. When she is finally rescued, uh, she says she, you know, she has to leave Middle Earth, you know, essentially trauma were at large. She's literally getting out of this world. And that happened thousands of years ago or some, it's hundreds of years ago in, in the thing of Middle Earth. And, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, not trying to say we have to read too much back into what we see of both Gladriel and Celeborn in Lord of the Rings. But you could almost argue, you know, it's sort of like how does backstory filter in? But this actually leads to another point, not to take over the discussion. This is something to throw in. My sense of it is that one reason I'm guessing why things are so unsettled for Gladriel is that she makes a striking introduction, essentially, to the whole legendarium in Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. if I remember right. That's yeah. where she does first appear. And it's almost sort of like having created this very, very compelling figure who is, you know, almost almost literally set on a pedestal, almost. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, for good or bad reasons. It's sort of like Tolkien's like, how – what do I do? Yeah. You know, how do I work with this character? And I think the unsettledness – you know, pitching that back over to you, Aranya, what, what do you think about that in terms of what, what he's what Tolkien was trying to do? I, I think that's that's exactly right. And I think it's it's interesting that it, it didn't seem like he could decide. So why is Galadriel still in Middle Earth in The Lord of the Rings is like, you know, a very key question to her her character is, you know, she's she yes, she left. She was part of the exiles, but they were given they were pardoned by by the valar uh after after the defeat of the great enemy and were allowed back and galadriel doesn't go and there are a number of different answers to this question and they all kind of hold similar weight one is that she um was not actually pardoned by by the valar that that she was deemed too proud or too you know she messed up too badly somehow i guess uh and the other is that she was given pardon but refused it but that's never completely explained other than just she is proud and enjoys having her own little kingdom to rule what do you which one do you guys think is more compelling and more true to the character. Hmm. I know. Jared, you want to take that one first? I think the yeah, I think the version where she refuses pardon makes a lot of sense because what we see of her in the published work, like the Silmarillion, is that she's kind of secretive. She her reason for leaving Valinor is explicitly like I want my own thing to rule, mm. and so she goes through this process of like really, really learning what she's lost. Mm-hmm. And then by the time Frodo comes along and says, you want the ring? She's able to say, no, I kind of want to get out of here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which is why, you know, she passes the test and the test wouldn't be set for her, I think, if she didn't have this thing in her past yeah. that she had to learn to overcome. That leads me to think that sort of to tie in with why refused, uh, more thoughts on this, it was that we, we've been sort of not dancing around the subject, but we probably should, you know, get to, you know, the killer scene, which is the mirror of Galadriel scene, yeah. you know. Hey, we're finally talking about something Lord of the Rings in Woo! detail. Who knew? So, <laughs> yeah. But that's the point. There's so much out there. So, but um, it's obviously, you know, such a central, you know, it, it's one of those memorable scenes in the entire book. And, uh, and you know, he clearly, you know, 
the reason why it's so often played for a huge dramatic moment in any of the adaptations is precisely because it's a huge dramatic moment. It's practically a monologue. Um, and uh, when uh, when she goes through all that and there's this sense of, you know, I would say to answer your question, Oriana, uh, is, yeah, the sense of sort of the, a bloody mindedness, mm-hmm. I guess, is the best way to put it. You know, stubbornness, if you want to call them that. But I think it's something more than that. And I think what we see in Tolkien's attempt to sort of explain this character after the fact in the writings that only emerged, you know, again, after he was dead, was sort of like, I have got this incredibly fierce character here. What do I do? And uh, and that and what he's done is he's created something that he has to explain why the character is so fierce. And so this sense of like, you know, domains of their own, et cetera, I think we can tie that into, of course, you know, Tolkien's own idea of, you know, what is power? Yeah. Subcreation in particular. Right. Yeah. 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 Just sort of like, you know, holding on to things, you know, and all that, trying to claim things for one's own. Um, and uh, and there's a lot more sort of kicking around my head, but I can't quite find the words for it. Maybe I'll come back to it in a bit. Um, but uh, but the sense of surrender, you could say, to mm-hmm. something inevitable is, you know, again, the passing of the test, as uh, as she says. So you get the you get the huge moment. And then she says that I will diminish and mm-hmm. that's a very, very interesting choice of word. You know, diminish, go into the West and become Gladriel, which, you know, incorporated, of course, into the into the uh, film, the Jackson film, very clearly. That's that to me is, is sort of a key line. It's almost sort of like on the one hand, you could say it's like, ah, a character is 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 humbling <laughs> themselves and you can read into what you want with that. But at the same time, it's not just her doing that in Lord of the Rings. Uh, in fact, it's rather more it's it's extremely interesting. In fact, you could argue it's incredibly interesting that, you know, on the one hand, Gandalf way earlier in the book is like, oh, no, please don't tempt me. No, no, go away. Whereas yeah. Galadriel's sort of like, oh, it's right here. I'm going to handle it. Yeah. <laughs> and all that. And you could say she's you could argue she might even be the stronger character in that regard. I totally concur. And I think it's interesting too going back to like the idea of uh relinquishing. You know, we see that over and over again in Tolkien's work which is, you know, men must relinquish life. The Numenorians must relinquish their long lives. Um, you know, it's about not being too attached to the world, even if you are, as the elves are literally like, you know, body and soul tied to the world. Like she, she exists actually almost as a thesis statement. Like, Hmm. uh, am I crazy? Like, no, (laughs) feel free to say yes. But yeah, no, she, she, like, particularly like I, I, Ned, you bringing it up, I hadn't thought of this before, but uh, the, the line that says, you know, I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel is so interesting because you would think that diminishing would mean not remaining Galadriel, but in fact, diminishing is the crux of remaining Galadriel. You know, one could argue that it was unnatural for not like because she's a woman, but but it was unnatural for her for her to seek these, you know, to seek dominion, to seek rule. Uh, and it's her learning, you know, it, 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 her arc as a character is learning to to diminish and mm-hmm. that it's not truly diminishing. It's simply remaining yourself. 
And there's something interesting there, too, in the fact that suggests that she has to learn a lesson, whereas, again, we don't know too much about him because he is such a uh, such a shadowy character in his own right, and that would be uh, Kelleborn, is that, you know, is he wise because he already learned that lesson? But given his own unsettled background of a story, um, you know, that's uh, that's that's something interesting. In terms of Dominion, I'm reminded of something, and I was when I was rereading some of the unfinished Teal's material was the part that uh, I had completely forgotten about that uh, Christopher Tolkien suggests is pretty much key to the story as Tolkien had developed it, which was that they hadn't been there though they'd been on the other side of the mountains in Aragion, they actually hadn't been uh, in charge, let's say, of Lorien uh, until fairly recently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. They had spent time like down in down in Gondor, essentially, and then just sort of in the Elf Haven there, and they were just there for a couple of thousand years, just chilling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of an interesting place to be. It's sort of like, oh, um, okay, uh, Gondor's all around and all this stuff is happening. What are you doing? Hi. <laughs> just a very odd, odd, odd sort of suggestion. Well, I think that that whole thing in itself is really interesting as part of this progression that she goes through because you know she comes to middle earth because she wants to rule her own realm when they come to lorien depending on which chronology you're following amroth has been the king of lorien and then he leaves and dies or something and the people of lorien are like can you just be in charge of us now and she doesn't she explicitly she and Celeborn are explicitly like we're not going to be your king and queen mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we'll be yeah. the lord and lady of lorien we're just kind of holding it so she's already kind of on a downward trajectory from like being a ruler to being a caretaker and then from there it goes to no ring for me thanks yeah it is interesting that she like she comes to middle earth and then never really has a kingdom she never achieves her dream no. It's, it's, it's so weird. And it is like, yeah, I still can't get over like why she married this drip Caliborn in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) I loved being reminded, quite frankly, and this is one of those cases where Tolkien clearly dodged a bullet, where apparently the original form of uh, Caliborn's name is, and if you, and you know what I'm talking about, and for (laughs) you folks who are listening, you're about, your mind is about to be blown. I am not kidding you. It's spelled exactly the way I'm sounding it. Teleporno. And... He apparently came up with this in like 1950s, if I remember right, or it's just an early version of the name. Thank goodness he. Because uh, <laughs> that was is that the is that the Quenya form of the name? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So thank God he was like. Thank, thank God for rough, rude Cinderin in comparison. Yep. Apparently. Yeah. Ugh. Yep. <laughs> I mean. Wow. I mean, my other favorite bit is that apparently, like, you know, one one version of the story is that uh, Caliborn's father is named Elmo, Elmo. and I'm like, oh, and, and, oh yeah, know, oh it, yeah. I mean, it, it does, you know, it works within the, like, it would make sense for him to, for, for this character to have a name that is similar to Elmo, which is the Lord of Waters, but... Uh, yeah, L- like there are so many names that are so good. Like I, l- I like Aldarian is a wonderful name. Um, yes. Arandis is a wonderful name. But some of them, yikes! <laughs> we were just talking about this Soranto and 
teleporno and oh god it just well, we, see, we we got lucky with galadriel boy do yes. we get lucky <laughs> yeah what 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 an evocative name i mean we could really talk about that but maybe to bring up a point this is this is something you had mentioned uh earlier oriana uh, not in our discussion but just some of your notes and i'd like you to talk about it more uh the hair and how it uh how it how, how she reacts with one person acting with her hair and someone else asking for her hair yes so you know her uh her thinking her half uncle Feanor is a creepy weirdo um is is you know it's it's just set, it's not like said in the Silmarillion or anything it's very like you know kind of sketched in in other sources Feanor was like before he decided to create the Silmarils uh because of her hair um he was so enamored with her hair that he like kept badgering her about like taking a lock from, from, her, you know, he was like, can you give me some of your hair? And she's like, no, you weirdo. Um, <laughs> and kind of stalks around being like, can you believe this weirdo wanting my hair? And then though, you know, two, uh, two three ages later, I guess she, you know, someone else asks her for a lock of her hair. Uh, Gimli, son of Gloin, uh, is like, you know, not to be a weirdo, but I would treasure a lock of your hair. And she's like, yeah, you know what? You're cool. So <laughs> what do we think happened here? Do we think that it was personal growth or did she really just hate Feanor that much? What do you think is the difference between the two? Well, correct me if I'm wrong. It isn't that he asked for a lock for hair, right? You just asked for a single hair. Uh, yes, a strand. Yeah, and and I and I think and I think that right there may be me the difference. It's sort no, of I like think he, I think it was like I, I don't think Feanor was asking for like you know a whole hank. Like I think it really was a few strands. I don't think he was. I mean, it's still weird, but yeah. I bet Feanor just didn't ask nicely. I think he probably asked in a way that was very like, gimme your hair. And Gimli is like, oh, great lady, please, if you could condescend to... But that actually ties in your the sense of veneration that you're bringing up. Yes. Um, you know, there, there's so much of that. I mean, I already made the pedestal joke, but, uh, but it's um, true. you know, this, this. I mean, hey, but I mean, uh, this this sort of ties in, or we can even talk about how Kate Blanchett was wearing those platform shoes for the adaptation. Yeah. So, but, uh, but right, she was. But but on a more <laughs> on a more serious note, something that occurred to me again reading through this, this is just my take was um, Tolkien's Catholicism. And mm -hmm. sense of intercession. I don't know yeah. if you want to, either of you want to sort of dwell more on that, because I think she sort of serves a, is it a saint role? Is it an angel? I, I mean, I don't know. It's a very sort of Virgin Mary role. Like she even gives them bread that is divine. And I think there's some letter or something where Tolkien is like, yeah, the Lembus is definitely significant. Yeah, I think it's it's more of a Virgin Mary kind of thing that's happening here where she's like, she is divine, noble, knows lots of stuff, and offers sustenance and help in time of need. I don't think it's quite a saint kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm not Catholic. I wasn't raised Catholic. Different flavor of I conservative was. Christianity. But <laughs> oh, you were. Okay. I was. I was. And yeah, it does feel very much she is the one that you turn to in your darkest hour. And where do they arrive in their darkest hour? Lothlorien. Lothlorien. Um, I do think it's interesting too going back to the history like if we think about um Aragion, uh you know if, if if we think about like i i don't know how the timing would work exactly like did because galadriel is like told sauron to screw off 
um, when in the second age, when he was coming around, like pretending to be a good guy. Whereas Celebrimbor is like, oh, hey, cool. You can teach cool, me stuff. a dude with gifts. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'll take your gifts. <laughs> and, and, and didn't Tolkien himself in in his notes pretty much say, he, you know, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know why she didn't warn anybody or something <laughs> like that. Like, which is sort of like, boy, that's passive aggressive. <laughs> it would be really funny if she just, like was like what if you guys can't figure it out i'm not gonna help you um well does it say does it say that she knew who he was because my impression was always like she was kind of going oh i don't know about this guy no one really knew who he was because no one had ever really connected all of the bad things that sauron was responsible for i think a lot of people thought that you oh he just did the isle of the werewolves or whatever and like that was it and you know he had all these different forms and different uh positions of power in the reign of of morgoth um in hell's hierarchy yeah it was (laughs) this this sorry to interrupt um this makes me think of sort of an underrated power of hers something that you can tell that tolkien probably wasn't totally, I don't want to say comfortable, but wasn't sure about systematizing. And that's uh, that's her sense of, like, looking into your soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the sort of sense of communication across distances. Yes. Which was conveyed a particular way uh, in the film versions. But setting that aside, um, not merely the uh, sort of the one-on-one encounters or discussions that she has when they first when the fellowship first meets her and now afterwards everyone's sort of like wow i felt you know really uncomfortable like you know so yeah. she was like you know and just you know, and everyone sort of says they can't quite articulate how they feel but i'm also thinking about her you know in the mirror of galadriel scene where she's sort of like basically telling frodo and sam who's sort of admittedly not totally following along by his own admission where she only tells frodo as a as an audience member that you know the still the door is shut you know a big dramatic gesture off towards the east and you know who is that for it's not really for frodo i mean yeah i would say it's almost like an actualization of things uh it's interesting because it ties into your point oriana about how she is the fairy queen this is something yeah. beyond the can of even dwarves yes. or, or other elves it's something it's something at a higher level yeah she is she is very in, particularly in the movie and i think again it's an indelible performance by Kate Blanchett, mm. and I'm interested to mm-hmm. see what they, how the Amazon show handles Galadriel, if at, if all. at all. Although, mm-hmm. but like you mm-hmm. kind of have, to, she's she is around, and she does tie. Like I feel like they need to tie with Elrond and Galadriel. Like those are going to be, you know, mm. they're like, hey, remember these folks? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They're part of the story. Part, too. Yeah, we we mm-hmm. swear. Uh, sorry, we can't get you know. Hugo Weaving and Kate, well, Kate Blanchett still looks basically the same, but you know they've kind of aged out of looking ageless. How does she do that? I don't know. Well, yeah, we do know, but um, <laughs> and it's not it's not Nenya, the Ring of well, I don't remember which one it is. Um, Adamant, Adamant, the Ring yes. of Water. But uh, wait, where was I going with this? <laughs> I don't remember. Well, uh, her, her her sense of psychic outreach, or however you yes, want to describe uh, this, it. This this is very like she is she is you know very inscrutable, very mysterious, very uh, aloof, um, and it really feels like because so much of of the Lord of the Rings proper does not feel like does not feel connected to fairy story at all. Um, and she is the element. I think that she, he was like, I am going to get this element in there. 
by hook or by crook and ended up creating like an incredible character because he he needed this this like because even well i guess the the scenes with the elves when um they're still in when frodo and sam are still in the shire are are kind of fairy-esque but it's 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 a very light touch whereas this is like full-on you know magic is hell Although not, although not, because it's not, magic right. is. it's not, you know, you would call this magic, but I, you know, and for me, it's a, a weird Tuesday. moment too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so weird where she's like, she's like confused by hobbits being like, what are these wonders? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about, dude. <laughs> it's just that's my what house. Elves do. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's an interesting this just occurred to me. I can't say I've you know, ever dwelled on this thought, but I suppose, you know, it's a weird sort of way how language, you know, where language fails. Yeah. Which is interesting mm-hmm. in Tolkien that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, for all that the story is, of course, written in English and all that, you get this sense of someone saying something that someone else just doesn't quite understand. Yeah. And uh, that could there could be a wider point behind that. It could just simply be just, you know, and, you know, just a turn or an indulgence. But maybe there's something more to it than that no i think that was actually what i liked most the the thing that i loved the most about is it felt like it was be it was a translation from a different language and there were there were these sort of you know there was stuff being lost in translation and you know rereading it is always an effort to to bridge those gaps and, you know, delving into the lore and the other languages uh, that, that were created for it is an effort on my part to to get into to, to bridge those gaps. And uh, I'm thinking how, you know, it's interesting that, of course, we're seeing this through Frodo's eyes because I'm suddenly flashing back, thinking to your mention of Elrond, um, about how in the Council of Elrond, you know, Frodo is literally astonished and taken aback to realize that that Elrond, you know, remembers the war against Sauron and, yeah. you know, and all that. And, uh, you know, that's someone you sort of, you get a sense from him. It's like, wow, this person is impossibly old in a way that I almost can't like literalize. And then Galadriel's even more so. <laughs> what, what, what if, what if Elrond, but more? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he knows Elrond from like Bilbo stories and he's like, Oh, he's this guy who just like hangs out and gives you dinner. And then <laughs> true. No way. <laughs> he was part of all this. Yep. He's actually important. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Putting it. It's definitely, yeah, that's what's, I love that. Um, but here's, okay. So here's the thing that this, this will probably be, this is a good sort of thing to end this topic on is, is do you guys personally have creative projects that like that you have worked on for most of your adult life? Is there, or is there, is there an ongoing thing that you are constantly refining going back to, you know, like the story of Galadriel and boring Celeborn. Celeboring. Sorry, I can't keep, I can't stop harping on this. I do have things I've been refining for years and years and years and changing backstories and things like that. Why? And it's a, why? Yeah, I mean, I know why, but like for you in particular, why do you, why do you keep, what keeps, what keeps you going back? Part of it is I don't know when to quit. There we go. There are useful, these long running things are a useful way to track how you're thinking about the world, which I didn't know when I started them because uh, there's one thing in particular I'm thinking of. I started when I was like 16 and 
had probably just read the Silmarillion and was like, oh my God, um, <laughs> you can do this. And the things that came out of it during that time are very much informed by how I thought about the world when I was 16, which is not how I think about it now. So I go back and I look at that and I go, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> let's fix this. So I don't, I don't think there's any anything equivalent to Galadriel where there's like this one specific backstory that keeps en- ending up like shifting in time, shifting on its axis or whatever. But it's these things are interesting enough that like I care about them and I want to keep working on them. But it's also because I no longer agree with the premise of whatever this thing is that I've got to like rejigger it, bring it more in line with who I am now. I hesitate to say that was his own process, but it would make sense to me given that he did keep going back to like famously with orcs being like, well, are they sentient beings? Do they have free will? Cause he was so bothered by what he had written when he was younger that he kept trying to make it make sense to him. Yeah. I, I don't have anything like uh Jared's, uh, uh, work uh, to compare to in that regard. I am a little more like yourself, Ariana. I, I have, you know, I, I try and th- create moments that are short and then I'm done with them. And then to one degree or another, I move on, uh, uh, referring mostly to my writing work on music for the most part. There's, there's something to maybe the closest equivalent is coming back and reinterrogating your own taste. Um, kind of like the way Jared was saying. So, you know, how you look at things. Um, to my mind, this is something that I've, maybe because of the age I am, I'm not sure. Maybe this is something that I've escaped where it might not be as, might not be as something that I, that people around your age or younger can escape for the simple reason that social media wasn't around. That's reductive. That's very reductive. Um, but what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, a lot of my thoughts about, uh, let's say music, but also literature, movies, stuff like that, were formed, uh, you know, for the most part in the late 70s through the 80s as I grew up and became, you know, late teenagers. By the time it was 1990, I was 19 years old. Um, but my formal writing as such didn't start until after that. Now, of course, there are younger thoughts. And frankly, what I try and do every so often is look back, say, about 20 years, which is uh, when I really started writing for professional uh, publication on a national level on certain acts. And uh, there are acts who I very much gone there. You know, I've I've gone off. There are acts who I feel very about precisely because of things that have come to light about them since Ah, then, things that I either didn't know or didn't fully appreciate. And so there's a certain sense of self-editing. At the same time, the work is out there and maybe even contradicting my own point. Even though, uh, even though what I wrote, you know, again, pre-social media, even at that point, um, is still now out there because, you know, the internet is forever not true and yet partially true. Um, there's work out there that I tend to regard more in a, ooh, I could sort of phrase that better or we could talk about that better. Maybe the closest comparison, though, maybe, could be to the band who I've always described as my favorite band of all time, My Bloody Valentine. True. I mean, there's if there's a lodestone in terms of, okay, my taste has turned and this is the road I'm on, it was clearly hearing them for the first time back in 1990, etc. I could go on and I have at great detail <laughs> in many different places over time. Um, but I don't don't think I've come up with an exact summation in my brain about how I regard them or how I think about them or my relationship to them and what they did. I've done my best over time, but I'm never quite satisfied. I don't think I'm going towards a final point 
of going like, there, I fixed it. I think it will just always be something that's sort of like, I've got these thoughts. And I can look back on them and go like, yeah, I accept that. But it's still not enough. It still doesn't quite get it. And so to tie back to your question, Oriana, and therefore the question about what Tolkien was doing, it could be that in a much different sense, because of course this was, you know, I'm talking about, you know, receiving the artistic, you know, (laughs) receiving the artistic product versus, you know, and who knows how Kevin Shields, the main guy of MBV, feels about his own work. He's, you often get a sense from him, he's never quite satisfied with his own work in turn. Tolkien is in that stage. He's sort of like, I've got this thing. Do I get it right? And I think the fact that you brought up that he, you know, was working on it up until the month before he died, to my mind, that shows the sort of like, I still haven't got this right. And I tie that in with those last few years when he was almost questioning everything about what he had done. It's just one last little outreach of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, it's interesting. So, you know, I have come to appreciate both, you know, trained as a journalist, worked as a journalist for, what, 14 years at this point? Oh, my God. But, uh, you know, and I loved, you know, or I actually kind of needed that. I need deadlines. I need a hard, like, uh, it has to be out in the world by this time. You can't keep writing and rewriting. It's interesting now that I am sort of pivoting to be, sorry, there's a thunderstorm, I guess, happening. Didn't expect that. Um, uh, Manway is letting himself be known. Yes. (laughs) Um, but I, I now am starting to move into screenwriting. Jesus, that sounds so pretentious and dumb. But, but I'm, I'm taking. I'm right now. I am taking some material that I wrote ten years ago and turning it into. You know, it was it was a novel, and I am turning it into uh, like a TV series. And the difference in Jared what you what you were saying about the way i viewed the world and the way i told stories then and the way that i look at the world and tell stories now is just like it's absurd the distance between the two you know all of the characters in this novel all of the all of the main characters are men yeah. Like, what? Yeah. Why did I do that? And so now I am, it is, it is this ability to correct uh, because, you know, no one actually saw the novel. Um, <laughs> or I think like, you know, 10 people saw the novel. No one will ever see the TV series either, but, but I will, I will know. Um, so I, I actually, I, I can appreciate that instinct to constantly re-examine your work, even if it is published and go, okay, how can I, how can I fix this? How can I improve this? How can I, you know, everything is just a draft, um, creatively, even if it is published, even if it is put out into the world, if you are that kind of person that Tolkien was, everything is a draft, Mm -hmm. the end (laughs) (laughs) yes no more no more uh yeah so i don't know that's my thought oh my god i can't wait to hear what jared's topic is (laughs) oh yes yes it's that time so may may oh okay main top main we're wrapped up so we got to look at the next topic it is jared's choice what is it I want to talk about friendship. (laughs) Nice. That's cool. Friends. Because I was 
Yeah, well, so, um, Ned, you had sent that that article from the Mary Sue about the friendship represented in um, the Tolkien biopic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, there, you know, friendship, specifically male friendship, because, you know, whatever, <laughs> um, is such a... <laughs> such a big part of Tolkien, but it's so different from the way we see it represented in other media nowadays that it's just, it's a really fascinating thing in its own right. And I would love to talk about it. So yes. yeah, friendship. I love it. Yeah. That, 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 that that's nicely cross cutting. It's clearly something that, uh, you know, you'll say more, of course, but uh, the fact mm-hmm. that the role, oh, it had, the role it had in his own life and how he translates that, uh, into, into his creative work. Wow. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to all the angles. This will be great. We have so, so many yeah. angles. I, right. Yeah. I, I mean, can't wait. and the great thing is, is that, you know, yes, Frodo and Sam, although arguably, mm-hmm. you know, is that a friendship or is that something else uh, on many well, different that's levels? That's one of the interesting <laughs> things. That's like why it's such a cool topic to pick apart is that the friendships are so layered, multi-layered yeah. and ambiguous that anyway, yes. Yeah, save it for the episode. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. Yeah, it, you know, definitely, like, immediately I'm thinking of the annoying TBS TNT ad campaign that for The Lord of the Rings where they were playing, like, secret lovers over, like... Frodo and Sam. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was a gay joke that was like dumb on literally every level. There was no level on which it was like an okay thing to do. Um, yeah, yeah, it existed. I'll have to find it on YouTube or something. Yeah, I'm gonna look this up. Yeah, yeah. We'll link it and say like, don't actually go here, but here it is. Right, <laughs> don't right. give them any traffic. Yeah. Ugh. Oh boy. Well, something something to ponder for next time. But again, great talking to uh, everybody. Uh, wonderful uh, chat as always. Any final thoughts before we wrap up here? I love Galadriel. Love Galadriel. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. She's a great character. And if you haven't sensed by now, yeah, Kate Blanchett. You know, yes, and all yeah. that. So I, I retain questions about how she was used in The Hobbit, but there's many oh, different things no, in oh, the God, Hobbit no, movies. No, but no. Talk they don't, they don't exist. The Hobbit movies don't exist. I've we just... may have to give in at some point. And oh, that would we be will. Something, even if it's like, think of it this way. I can I can pretty much predict, I can see us doing individual episodes for for Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. We'll probably do The Hobbit in one episode, and it may be short. <laughs> so, no, no, we'll, do, we'll, we'll say it's one episode. We'll stretch it into yes. three. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Uh, we, Lizzie like, proud. I think it's... <laughs> what are the, the Hobbit movies are the, are actually like it takes so much time to pick apart all of the ways in which it doesn't work. Sorry yeah. to everyone who put in so much effort and love and care into making it. I'm sorry. I, yeah, that that raises a good point. I love the documentaries around the making yes. of those films. Oh yeah, those are fabulous. But yeah, the films. But anyway, off track, and that would take us a few more hours. So anyway, we're wrapping up here. So uh, until next month, we'll talk to you soon. As always, show notes uh, to be found uh, to be found on the site. Uh, information in our outro about how to contact us. Any questions and things, and we'll talk to you all next month. See you soon. Thanks again for listening to this episode of By the Bywater. Please subscribe and rate us via your favorite podcast listening options. Episodes and show notes are at megaphonic.fm slash by the bywater, all one word. You can also message us through here. Email us at by the bywater at megaphonic.fm or follow us on Twitter at by the bywater. You can also follow us individually on Twitter and ask questions there. I'm at Vandroid Helsing. 
I'm at Schwinter, S-C-H-W-I-N-D-T-E-R. And I'm Ned Raggett, two G's, two T's. By the Bywater is a proud member of Megaphonic Podcast Network. Find all our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm. We hope you join us again next time. Until then, Namarie. Namarie.